morning. It's been a couple of years since I've been up in front of you guys, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do so. And I want to encourage everybody to take out a Bible, if it's one that you have in your chairs or if it's your own. Um, I really want to encourage us to be interacting with the Word and to be um, engaging with it. And so if you could do that. And also in your bulletins you have some sermon notes. Um, we, we didn't do uh, discussion questions because I'm, I'm hoping that by the end of today you will have um, the ability to use these notes as your discussion questions as you engage with someone in your community group or neighbors or um, different uh, people within uh, the congregation and outside of the congregation. Um, so please use those. So if you take those out, get something to write with um, so we can engage uh, in, with the Word. My focus today is a little bit too, has two parts. Um, one is kind of presenting uh, a way of engaging, a way of thinking about the Word, and, and, and then we're going to put it to the test. We're going to we're going to uh, read from Jeremiah 29 and, um, and and use what the first half kind of talked about. Um, so bear with me on this on this first part, and, and hopefully it can um, give us a good start. I'm not a uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not big at posting stuff on Facebook. If I want to make a point, I usually like to talk face-to-face or engage with someone face-to-face because I think a lot of the times that Facebook world can be very um, cold and and passive. But one of uh, the articles that I saw, um, I had to to post it. Um, And it was an article written by a guy named Brian Irwin, I think. And Brian talked about how there's, um, the, I think it was called the top five Bible verses that are taken out of, out of context. And uh, it's, it, the article basically talks a little bit about proof texting and how we take a, a piece of scripture and um, maybe aren't as responsible with that piece of scripture as maybe God would want us to be. Um, and so it's, it, from from my perspective, I love God's Word. I think that it is an incredible gift that God has given us, and I think that with that gift, we have to be um, stewards of it, that we have to be, um, we have to be responsible with, with that Word. And it's, it's out of my love for the Word that I come to you today and my, and my passion for what God has told us and what God has um, shared within it. Because the Bible is our go-to source when it comes to how our faith is to be thought of and lived out. And that makes it even more important to be good stewards of God's Word and not take it for granted. I believe that too easily we get stuck in a couple of things when it comes to reading and reciting God's Word. First one is laziness. Sometimes we look at the Bible and go, man, this is so extensive, this is so big, there's so much in there, there's so much I don't understand, 
I don't have time for this. And then there's fear. The Bible's so big, the, the, the big, it's so extensive, it's so deep. I don't know where to start. And what if I get it wrong? And then there's also consumerism, where we take the Bible and we make it our own little concession stand, and we pick out the things that we want for us, neglecting potentially more truth that God is trying to reveal to us. And this can lead to a number of roadblocks. First off, inaccuracy. The Bible is written with one truth. The Bible doesn't have multiple truths to it. The Bible was written with one truth. And it's important to respect that truth and seek out accuracy. Um, I, know, I know a couple of people who I, I very much respect um, have mentioned that they do this, but I, I, would, I would plead with you to, to please stop opening your Bible, close your eyes, and point. Has God worked in people who have done that? Yes. I'm, 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 I'm not above that. But it's this concession stand idea, and, and often we look at something, and we point to something, and, when, and what happens if we open up and it says, Judas killed himself? What do we do with that? Okay, we better try again, right? We have to be responsible to what's going on, to what we're pointing out. Now, if you would open it up, point to something, and read the greater context or the greater story behind it, I can see that more often. But being careful of inaccuracy. Uh, the second one is lack of effort in the Word. A lot of the times when we get with laziness and with fear, it's so easy to be like, I'm not going to do it. Forget it. And so we avoid. We avoid being in the Word altogether. And we don't want that either. And the third one is something that I've entitled biblical narcissism. And biblical narcissism is basically us taking a passage, a verse, a story, whatever, and we change the meaning of that text so that we can make it fit to us we 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 trim it we shave it down so that it fits something within us that we think is missing um in in talking with uh my wife stephanie about this she, she made up a good point it's almost like instead of starting with the bible and moving towards us we start with us and go towards the bible And I think that's just a great definition of of biblical narcissism. And so I want to pull out a couple of examples of of things that we've done. And actually, Scott, I really appreciate you um, and what you did with Jeremiah 29 because we did it today. And um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when he read Jeremiah 29.11, he also read Jeremiah 29.12, which I'm like, yes, thank you for doing that, praise God. And so... um, but, but there's verses like that. Um, for, for example, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? One that we just like to, to, to pick out and fit into our little world. And at times, Jeremiah 29, 11 is also that situation where you're like, I know the plans that I have for you. Oh, God, thank you for your plans. And we fit it to us. But why wouldn't we do that with Psalm 137, verse 9. 
Blessed he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Or if you want to go to the New Testament in Galatians 4, where Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And if you don't know what emasculate means, it starts cutting off some body parts. That's what that means. Why don't we recite that? Why don't we use that in our everyday discussions? I would say let's start making keychains that talk about, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate yourselves. I say we do it. Why? Because I know the meaning behind it. And some of us in here, a lot of us in here know the meaning behind that. And how Paul was saying that we don't have to circumcise ourselves anymore in order to come to God. And people who are trying to make you come to God by circumcising you need to go all of the way and start cutting things off. It's a beautiful picture of what God did through the cross. And when we know that truth, then we can, we can start reciting that and, and, and using that. Uh, I've been reading through Matthew <clears throat> over the last uh, few weeks. And there's been some uh, pretty cool things that have come out in my reading of Matthew. And the, the big one that I see is there's examples in the Bible of people who are doing this. Who are, who are practicing biblical narcissism. So let me just read a couple to you. Um, Again, I, in, in your notes, I put initial notes. This is kind of the section that we're in now. So if there's some, some things that come up, questions that you have or comments, write those down so that you, you, know, you can engage with them later. So this is from Matthew 4, 5 through 6. And this is the temptation of Jesus. Starting in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw down, throw yourself down. So God brings him up to the temple and he says, You throw, throw yourself down. And, then this, and, 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 and Satan quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, Jesus, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan is, a, is an incredible biblical narcissist. Trying to do everything he can to take this beautiful word and try to tear Jesus down in his temptation. And Jesus responds to, it is also written that you shall not test the Lord your God. He, he shares what the truth is. He points out what the truth is. And that's how he responds. The next one is Matthew 12. This is the Pharisees. Okay? Pharisees are another group of people that love biblical narcissism. They do it all of the time. And it's all over Matthew. But I just picked out one really quick. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So in that moment, they're basically quoting Exodus 20 saying, 
the Sabbath day, keep it holy, do not work on it, do not make anybody else work on it. So they were quoting, or at least referencing, Exodus 20 to make a point. And Jesus responds, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread at the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So Bible, sorry, Jesus responds with truth. What really is the point of a given passage? I want us all, and I, and I stand up here not because I have it all together. I want us all to beware of watering down the truth by pulling something out that fits nicely into a Hallmark card instead of knowing what God is wanting us to do. Knowing the truth behind a given passage or or a given verse makes all the difference when using it in our everyday life and when memorizing it and and, and sharing it with fellow believers and potentially non-believers too, right? We don't want to be giving an inaccurate description of who God is um, when we're preaching to uh, non-believers too. Now, I don't want to discourage anyone because you have some of these verses hanging up in your home. That's not my intent. I want to build upon what you already know so that your truth and your understanding, and every time you walk by Joshua 24, you know, choose this day whom you will serve, that you will know, like, what's going on here? What was happening there that makes that passage so powerful? I want you to be able to walk by those verses and go, wow, I'm reminded of who God is and, 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 and a bit overwhelmed. And the second thing really quick is response, okay? Um, I, just, I want to make a quick note that for, for a long time, I feel like I've had this problem with the word application. I mean, we, we, we use it all the time. I've pretty much gotten over it here. But it was probably because of what the word application seemed to mean to so many people. I think for a lot of the times it was this idea of, okay, you're the pastor, you do your thing, and at the end I'll re-engage and you just tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to go and do out this week in order to be spiritual or to be godly. And, and, and that kind of application really didn't sit well with me, that, that definition of application. And so that's why I call this transformed by truth, because I want to, to define the idea of application as being transformed. <clears throat> application is not a badge that I give you because you listened to me talk today, and so now take this badge, because now that you've known what the word is, you can go out and do what I tell you to do. I don't think that fits. I believe that when we learn the word and ask the Holy Spirit to transform us based on what we read, we become empowered and attuned to what God wants from us. And it's really easy to cop out on a Sunday morning and come and say, Pastor, just tell me what to do. Let's just get to the point where you tell me what to do so that I can get on with my life and try as best as I can throughout the rest of the week. Um, I think all of us who were here for Pastor Mickey's sermon were blown away. 
and he kind of highlighted this idea of how how Peter came up to him and, and said, God, what do you want me to do? I love you. And Jesus says, you, Peter, you follow me. And what does Peter say? Well, what about everybody else? What are they supposed to do? You follow me. And that piece is in that transformation that each one of you has the Holy Spirit. Those of you who have come to faith in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. And let's not waste it. Let's be transformed. Let's, let's, let's tap into God. What are you trying to teach me through this? What, what do you want me to do? How, how do you want me to change so that I can better serve you? And my prayer is, is that we respond to our personal reading, our weekly sermons, in a way that reflects our love for God and His Word. Because I know most of us here love God's Word. I've had conversations with so many of you about your love for His Word and your desire to know it and to share it. And so let me give you a couple of things, and this is now on your, on your notes. So in looking, find out that key background information. Okay? What's going on? What's the, what's the story? What's the truth that's going on? And this usually takes potentially some good teaching, knowing the whole story, reading verses before and after, reading chapters before and after, reading whole books so you know the, the, you know, the story. We don't, we, don't watch move, we don't like going to movies and go right into the middle of the story and go like, okay, now I can really engage well. It's nice to know what's going on before. And at times it might be a well-respected commentary. Are all commentaries God's word? Nope. But a lot of commentaries are people who have sat down and studied the background and have studied the word and have prayed earnestly to God to teach them so that they may teach others. Do you respond to commentary as truth? No. Or as, as, as um, absolute truth? No. God is absolute truth. But sometimes we need a little bit of help finding that. So second is, is what does the passage say about God? Or what did we learn about God? The Bible is a story of what God did. So we should probably, as best as we can, be in tune to who he is and what his nature is. And that ultimately is going to um, help in guiding us to be transformed. And we know the God who we're worshiping and the God that we're serving is there. And then pray that God would transform you. And again, this is, one, this is one that always goes back to me. Stephanie teases me all the time that I'm all about head knowledge. And without this, it's absolutely worthless when you don't go into prayer and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? How are you calling me to follow you in the midst of this truth, in the midst of this passage? So we're going to try it. We're going to go through Jeremiah 29 and, and see what we can kind of do, what we can do with that. So let me pray and then we'll open up to Jeremiah 29 and we'll do like a, just a little mini sermonette on Jeremiah 29. It won't be extensive just because of time, but I want us to kind of give us an idea of uh, where to go from here. So please pray with me.
Father, your word is incredible, and we are all here seeking out, thirsting for, hungering for your word, your truth, and what you speak in there. And I think we're, we all in here believe that we need to be transformed by that, that we need to be changed people in a sense, that, that you are sanctifying us and teaching us and molding us. And we have the great benefit to be molded by your Holy Spirit. And what a great gift that is. May your Spirit begin to work in us and move in us even as we read and learn about what's going on in Jeremiah 29. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're not... Go to Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, and I'm going to give you background. And again, because of time, I'm going to go through this a little bit fast. Um, if you miss anything, um, please talk to me afterwards. But um, I'm basically going to try to give you the bare bones of the Old Testament up to this point so we can kind of be, be in line. So really quick. God creates the earth, he creates humans, humans sin, and there's this breaking between God and humans. We have the flood, he has to have judgment, and then um, Abraham comes along, and God says to him in chapter 12, we need to talk. There's this gap between me and humans, and we need to talk, we need to fix that gap. And so he shares Genesis 12, 2-3, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is God saying, I want all of the peoples on earth to be blessed through you. And what does blessed look like? Them coming to me. God's heart of, I want the entire world to come to me. And for right now, it's going to happen through you. Really, a really big calling. And so then we spend the next few books with God trying to teach his people, saying, okay, if if you're going to be my priesthood to the rest of the nation so that other people can be blessed, you've got to know my law. You've got to be perfect. You've got to live in a way that people look at you and go, wow, I want to serve that God. I want to follow their God. That's that's an incredible people. Let's do that. And so he gives the law. And they just struggle. I mean, we read the, the, the Pentateuch and we're just bogged down by the fact of their disobedience. And God says, I've got to punish you. He punishes them for disobedience. And he says, okay, let's try this again. They fail. He punishes them. Disobedience. He says, okay, let's try this again. Look at the book of Judges. That's all that Judges is. They disobeyed God. God let the nations come in, destroy them. They came back to God and said, God, we're sorry. Please come back. Okay. Sets a judge, builds them up. They disobey. It's, just a, it's, just a, it's, a, it's an overwhelming cycle when you read Judges. And so we get to a place where God has provided them a king. There's this long line of kingship. 
And uh, the other thing that we should note that in the Old Testament, everything is very polytheistic. Okay, so we live in a world right now that's very monotheistic. So like the big religions are Judaism, Muslims, and uh, Christianity, all monotheistic um, religions. Everything was very polytheistic. Everything is, is there's multiple gods. There's multiple roles that each one of these gods has. And um, if you guys remember back in the Exodus, when Moses goes up, what do the people build? A golden calf. That's a god. They said, oh, if Moses doesn't come back, well, we need something to supplement God. So let's put all of our gold and see what happens. Oh, look, we build a cow, and now we're going to worship it. Because we, we need to worship something, because they're very polytheistic. And so this process is going on throughout the kings, and they're, they're, they're worshiping other gods. And God says, no more. No more. And he allows a pagan nation to come in and destroy Jerusalem and the people within and take any survivors with them back to a foreign land as judgment for their disobedience and breaking their part of covenant. And now we come to Jeremiah and God sends him a message. Let's start with verse 4. 1 through 4 basically just tells us how the letter got there, who were the people who sent the letter. So again, for time's sake, I'm going to start with verse 4. Here's the letter that God sends to the people. And I'm reading for the ESV, so if you guys are reading from NIV, it might be a little bit different. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons, they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Excuse me. Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. Did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete from Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. I will, you will seek me and find me when, I seek, uh, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which you were in exile. So when we start with verse 4, we have this beginning piece where Jeremiah acknowledges Lord of hosts or God of Israel. So remember, we're in a situation where people are very polytheistic, multiple gods. So when he, whenever, you, whenever you see in the Old Testament the word Lord, and usually in our Bibles it's like a capital L-O-R-D, and then the O-R and D are a little bit smaller. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it is referring to Yahweh. 
which is very important. It's not, it doesn't make sense to us because it's like when we say God, we know who God is. But when you say God in the Old Testament, people are going, which one? Which one are we talking about? So when Jeremiah says, the Lord of hosts says, the God of Israel says, he's talking about a specific God, the God of Israel. Now we all sit there going, well, it's the only God. It's like, yeah, but they didn't know that. And it's interesting because Lord of hosts, the word host is like a big group of people. And it's, uh, it's a Hebrew word that usually is connected a little bit to um, like a big group of an army. So even that sense, especially with the people who just got destroyed by a heathen army, God says, I am the Lord, I am the Yahweh, I am the God of Israel of everything, even the armies, which is a, which is a key point to the next thing that he says. To all the exiles whom I have sent into Babylon. Now, now Israel's sitting there going, well, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure Babylon or the Babylonians are the ones that came and took us out. God makes it very clear. I am the Lord of hosts, and it was I who exiled you. It was based on my choice that brought you here. The Babylonians couldn't have done anything without me saying so. And he says this again in verse in verse seven. He 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 recognizes. Remember. I'm the one who sent you here. So with that being the case, you should probably focus on me to know how to, how to respond. Verse uh, 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat of their produce. Okay, We're going to put that on the shelf for a moment. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take your wives for sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. When you read that, if you have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament, the words that probably stick out are multiply and do not decrease. What is God constantly saying to his people throughout the Old Testament as he's living out his covenant? Multiply and increase in number. So when he says this, he is, he is pointing them directly back to his covenant. Directly back to what he's trying to get his people to see. So those are really key words that stand out. And to get a little bit of a, uh, ahead of myself, how many years is Babylon, or how many years is Israel going to be in Babylon? 70 years. The people who are hearing this, don't get to see this. Maybe children. But the people who are hearing this do not get to see this. So it's pretty evident that God's saying, if we're going to multiply, you've got to put a lot of your effort, even though you're probably not going to see a return back to your homeland. You need to build families and enjoy them. Multiply, do not decrease. Because I want there to be a people there that I can return back. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
Babylon is a heathen city with a heathen people and a heathen king. And God is calling Israel to pray for that city. My guess, and this is my guess, this is coming from me. My guess is it's twofold. One, so that Israel will benefit in, in, in um, Babylon and not be too persecuted. I think that's the obvious one when we read. But the second one is, especially if we look at the, the New Testament, how God is constantly telling the church, pray that the people in your city might see the God that you serve. And, and, I, and I have to think, in knowing the background of the Old Testament about how God wanted this, this chosen people to be a blessing so that other people would look at them and go, okay, that's great, I want to do that. I want to follow their God. I have, to th- I have to think that the rules don't change at this point. I have to think that God still on some level desires the people of Babylon to be blessed through the nation of Israel. That God's plan of salvation within the Old Testament is still in play. I, ha- I have to think that. I have to think that God is still in a, in a weird way caring for the, the, the well-being. Now, later we look in, in other judgments in Jeremiah later on and we see how God's going to destroy Babylon, which he does. The Persians come in and destroy Babylon. But that doesn't stop the fact that God's heart is for you guys to be a blessing within the nation that I have exiled you to. The covenant is still in play. The plan of salvation is still in play. Check out Psalm 106. Not, not, not right now, but spend time in Psalm 106. It talks a little bit about God's people in the midst of exile. So maybe just write a note to yourself. We, just, we don't have time to look at it, but um, there's some pretty cool connections there. Okay. Um, eight and nine, false prophets, okay? For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, right? Says it again. Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For time's sake, write down, if you have notes, write down Jeremiah 27, 9 through 10, and 14 and 15. I think those are the right ones. One of them is for sure, I know that. But this just gives you a little bit of a description of what they were prophesying. Again, for time's sake, I just want to kind of really brush past this. But basically what they were prophesying is, okay, now we're here, we're, we're here in Babylon, we're exiled, and all these prophets are like, well, we want to really boost up the, the people. So we're going to say that we're prophesying in God's name by, by saying this isn't going to last very long. God's just going to have us here for a for a little while, and then we'll get to go back. Don't worry about it. And God says, no. That is a lie. And in, in essence, I think that the prophets probably thought that that was a good thing. We want to, we want to encourage, we want to encourage, and so we're going to tell them a lie. And it probably was out of good intentions, maybe. I, I don't fully know. That, that said, God's going to save us. Don't, don't worry about it. But in a really backwards way, God's saying, you're going to be here for 70 years. And so this is us going back to verse 5, right? Plant, 
build houses. Live your life. He's basically saying, get comfortable because you're going to be here for a really long time. Get really comfortable because you're going to be here for a long time. And God's good in this moment just saying, I don't want my people to be unsettled and going, okay, well, what am I going to do? Like, God hasn't come yet. The prophets have said that he's going to come. Why hasn't he come yet? It's been one year. It's been two years. It's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 15 years. What's going on, God? They're constantly unsettled. God makes it clear. 70 years, and then I will do my work. That's good. I think of, I, I, I think of it connected to parenting, that... When you're, when you're trying to instruct your child, you give them a punishment and say, you know what, you're going to have to do time out or you have to get a spanking or whatever. And you go to them and saying, this is how long you're going to be here. You're going to take your time out for three minutes and, or whatever. And um, when it's done, I want you to think about how you can change your behavior. It's very directed. You don't let them sit and, and fester in in you know what i did wrong it's just it's very straightforward this is what you did wrong you pay the price and then it will be done and then i want you to live a life that's that's a little bit better god is being an incredible but up an incredible parent in this in this portion last piece the true prophecy this is my favorite part so verse 10 70 years okay remember the implications we don't have to go through that again He says, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Bringing the people back to Jerusalem is a reflection of his promise, not of the good works that they did. Once you do 70 years and you guys are good enough, then we'll talk about bringing you back. It's based on a promise. I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back. Not because of how good you guys are, but because I've made a promise to you and I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to stick to the covenant that I made with you because I love you. So you're going to come back with me because of my promise. Verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God knows his thoughts. God has it very well planned out. We could go back to the story of Joseph where they're like, oh, Joseph, we shouldn't have thrown you into the well because all this was a problem. And Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God had intended for good. God knows what the good is. He knows what, he knows what people need. He knows his mind. And sometimes we don't even know, we don't know our own minds. But God knows his mind. And he says that his mind is good, and he, and, he, and he paints this picture of good versus evil. Mind's for the welfare, mind's for good, and not for evil. Because you might think, well, like, man, he's punishing us for 70 years. That seems pretty harsh. What you think is evil, I know to be good. And what is the good? What is God's good? That the people of Israel would have a future and a hope when they did not deserve it. And then in 12 through 14, we see a holy response to God's promise. 
because of the work that God did, because God initiated this, he says, when all of this has happened, when I've, when I've asked you to return, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will, you will seek me with your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will make you rich again. Okay, he's saying that. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you out, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from where I sent you to exile. God is using his promise to create an expectation. I want to make this, uh, I'm going to quote a commentary I looked at. He says, promises are given not to supersede, but to quicken and encourage prayer. And when deliverance is coming, we must, by prayer, go forth and meet it. It's the same thing in in parenting. The, The first thing that I thought of was I would come up to Noah and say, "Okay, buddy, t- today we're gonna we're gonna go to um, we're gonna go to the park later when Mom gets home." So he he gets all excited and he's getting ready to go. And when it's been five minutes, he's like, "Can we go? Can we go? Is, is Mom home yet? Can we go?" And it just gets really excited. And he's he is because of a promise. He's coming to me and saying, "Let's make this happen." You said that this happened, like, and he, and he engages with me and he and not prays to me, but he interacts with me. I mean, think of it. After 70 years, these people have to be so pent up of, God, can we go now? Can we go back? Can we go? Can we, can we be returned back to our home? And everything on the list after that is a response due to the perfect work of God. And how could they not return to him with their whole heart? After all that was said, after all that was promised, after all of who God is, how could they not return to him with his whole heart? So every time you see Jeremiah 29, 11, don't forget at the absolute least verses 10 and 10 through 14. And that's why I was so glad that Scott kept reading. Because the story is so much bigger and we would miss out if we stood and just said like, oh, God's got some plans for me. That's really cool. Okay. There's so much more. I don't want any of us to miss out on that. I know I'm going really long. I'm almost done. This passage has been on my heart for a really long time. Um, Stephanie and I started dating almost 10 years ago. And um, we went to a Twins game. It's kind of like our first date. And we had a discussion about verses that were taken out of context. And Jeremiah 29:11 was one of those, one of those verses. This, has been, this is one that's been on my heart for a really long time. And every time I hear and read, I'm reminded of the power of God's promise and his faithfulness to keep his promise no matter what his people does. And I know that when I pursue things that are not of God, His promise is there waiting for me that I might run unbound towards Him.
And I never forget that promise he has for me now. That I have died and risen to life. That all who seek me with their whole being may live with me forever. Thank you, Jesus. Now I ask you, how have you been transformed? What did you learn about God's story and God himself? And what is the Spirit calling you to do? And I want you to share it with each other. This is the good stuff to post on Facebook. You share it with people. Share with brothers and sisters. You share the hope that you have with non-believers. And that you would leave here just with one thing to do, but maybe so much more. And we can walk away transformed and hopefully more effective in our everyday life. Let's pray. God, your rich promise is overwhelming. things that you have for us that we don't deserve is humbling and we gladly accept. Let us not quench the Spirit in any way, but let us be transformed by the Spirit. Let us be so moved to do what He has called us to do. And that we would be forever changed and that the people that we come into contact would be forever changed. And God willing, that people would come to know you because of it. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us as a gift. Help us to be responsible, Father. Help us to love it and know it so that we can be transformed. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name.